Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 9, as we read verses 18 to 26. Hear now the word of God. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. And the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray and ask our God to bless his word. Heavenly Father, even as we look at this text, I am aware that there are some among us who are hurting, who have steep climbs ahead of them who face extraordinary challenges in their lives that they have to learn how to entrust those things to you. And there are others among us who are hurting so badly and it is the hardest thing in the world to believe that you care. And then there are others among us, O God, who simply need to learn compassion. Will you speak to us today, whoever we are? Will Will you convict us of sin if we've sinned? Will you grant us faith in your son, especially if we feel like we're teetering on the brink? Whatever we need, would you send your spirit to help us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I wonder if Some of you relate to this. When I was a young Christian, I grew up on tales of extraordinary faith. What I mean by that is that when I was a teenager, I became became a Christian and I was fixated on the big stories. Uh, I was fixated on the encouragement that came from knowing that there were those who came before me who who were towering figures, giants of the faith, who lived the kind of faith that I knew that I was supposed to aspire to as a young man. I knew I was supposed to, 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 to desire these things for myself one day. Um, I've told you before of my admiration of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was one of my early heroes, and he stood against Hitler's Third Reich and paid the price with his life. I remember hearing the story of Jim Elliott, who was taking the gospel to the tribal people in Ecuador, right? The big Christians, the, the giants, And who doesn't need those stories? Who doesn't want those stories of faith? Faith that's hard. Faith faith that's costly. We need those examples. I am convinced because 
one day we may very well be pressed to the limit by a temptation that we may not be able to, may not think that we're able to bear, or we may be persecuted, and we may remember those who came before us and pressed onto the finish line, and perhaps God even uses those examples to cause us to persevere as well. But what about the stories of, of, of small faith, of ordinary faith, of, of people who didn't change the world, people who didn't do big things, they didn't end up being exciting sermon illustrations. Um, while we may be called upon to give our lives as martyrs, I am much more sure of this, that we will all live lives where daily, ordinary faith is the order of the day. We live lives that are mundane and routine and where we struggle sometimes to trust God in the midst of the most normal or I might even dare say boring circumstances. I feel like today's passage gives us an example of each of those kinds of faith, right? You have the, you have the bigness of the ruler who actually believes that Jesus can raise his little girl from the dead. But then you have this forgotten, lonely woman who is not named, who has a private medical problem that she trusts Jesus to take care of. You see, um, sometimes trusting Jesus looks big and exciting. And sometimes, in fact, I'm going to say usually, trusting Jesus is far more mundane. But the important element in all of this is that we've got we have got to learn to trust Jesus regardless of the circumstances. And, and I think that you have both of those extremes sandwiched here this morning. And so first, here's our outline. First, we have extraordinary faith. Second, we have mundane faith on display here. And then third, we'll look at what we are all called to, I am sure of, which is daily faith. And so let's look at all of those today. Um, first, we encounter extraordinary faith. Um, think of this man in verse 18. He says, my daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So this man believes something. And the thing that he believes has brought him here to Jesus. He believes that if Jesus would just lay his hand on his daughter, she will live. Think of that. Is there anyone in your life that you believe that about? That, that if they would just lay a hand on this person in my life who has just died, that they would rise up again? I, I highly doubt it. I don't think you know anyone in your life that you believe that about. And it's an extraordinary thing that this man believes. Think about Jesus's ministry up until this point, no one has been raised from the dead in the narrative yet. Um, we do see resurrections take place in the Old Testament. First Kings and second Kings, we see Elijah and Elisha raise someone from the dead. And this man, surely he thinks with a sort of simple, profound faith that Jesus can do it too. He knows that Elijah and Elisha did it. Perhaps Jesus can too. In fact, he doesn't just think perhaps he can do it. He doesn't just believe Jesus can do this. 
He believes that God has done it before. He, he believes the scriptures. He believes the, the message of God. He believes that God is able to raise the dead. And he sincerely believes that just a touch from Jesus will be enough to save his little one. He doesn't just say, lay your hand on her and she may yet live. This is not somebody who's just, he's trying everything, right? I'll try anything, Jesus. I'll even ask you to come and lay a hand on my daughter. Instead, he speaks with a deeper certainty. He doesn't say she might live. He says, lay your hand on her and she will live. He's saying, I know where to find my help. Where else could I go? And he goes to Jesus. This is faith in an extraordinary moment. Think of this man. Think of all the things that are in his life. Is there anything this man could possibly have that's more precious to him than his daughter? And he has lost it. This is, this is big faith and the power of Jesus to do a big thing. Something that so far we haven't seen in Jesus' earthly ministry yet. And he, yet he believes that it can be done. I think we need big stories of big faith. We do need those. Right? God has given them to us in scripture and in history. The story of Abraham, the story of Moses, the stories of, of David versus Goliath. Um, one of the reasons I'm thankful for our Sunday school curriculum is that it doesn't just focus on the big stories. It doesn't just tell you, make sure you hear David and Goliath multiple times a year, right? Make sure you hear the story about Jonah and the whale multiple times a year. As long as kids know those big stories, then that's a good curriculum. And, and our curriculum takes you through the whole Bible and reminds you that all of Scripture is precious and important. It's not just in Scripture, though. We have the big towering figures, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Bonhoeffer. Just keep throwing names out. You know the big names. We know the big stories of faith that we're, we're used to hearing, perhaps, those stories are told because we need to be reminded that even when it is hard to believe and the deck seems stacked against people, there were those who moved forward anyway during a time when your average person would be paralyzed. What did they do? They trusted God when it was hard to trust God. And as a teenager and as a young man, do you know what happened? I heard those stories. I, I listened to so much Christian radio. Uh, um, I just listened to just tons of preaching, tons of stories. And I, I loved, I thrilled to hear these narratives. And God used those stories to instill in my own heart a willingness to do anything for him. I remember when my wife met me in, in college, I, I didn't want to get married. I wanted to live a, a single life like Martin Luther, right? I didn't get to the end of the story where he definitely wanted to get married really bad. Um, <laughs> But I, that's how I pictured myself. I thought, I'm, I'm here to, to take the Lord seriously. I can't have marriage getting in my way. And I definitely got married really shortly after that. Um, but God, he instilled this desire to be serious about him in my heart. And he used those stories to get me there. Um, he used them to make me resolute at a time when I needed as a young man to be resolute. And he, he shapes us with the big extraordinary stories. That, that resolution is important, even if it takes a long time to form. We need to resolve like people of God, I will even die. And we need to mean it from the heart. Yes. You know, sometimes we chuckle at the apostle Peter. 
Um, even in our reading today, we saw Jesus' words to Peter. Uh, you remember, he tells Jesus, he says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Think of, think of Peter. Peter has extraordinary faith here, right? He's, he's ready to die. He's resolved that he's, he's going to die. He's resolved that he has heroic faith that will be written about for centuries to come. And, and he, he thinks he means it. And he really, from the bottom of his heart, he feels it. And yet Jesus tells him, you're going to deny me three times. You're not going to just deny me once. You're going to deny me three times. But here's what's, this is meaningful to me. Peter aspires to be faithful, right? There, there are lessons here in Peter's life about pride and being strong-headed, of course. But here's something that is, that is missing in how we think of Peter. Peter fails initially when the opportunity comes for him to keep his words, right? He says, I won't deny you. I won't deny you. And then when the moment comes, he denies him three times more than he thought he ever would. But here's the thing about Peter. He actually does live up to this aspiration. He actually does. Because he eventually follows through all the way to death. You know, we initially shake our heads because he failed. He failed to live up to the extraordinary faith he wanted to show off, right? He wanted to be that man, and he wasn't that man. But that enthusiasm stayed there. It didn't leave when he failed. Instead, what happens? Go to the end of the life of Peter, and you find that that young conviction, that early desire to honor Jesus with his life and, and to shape him into the sort of man he later came to become, when the moment truly came, the first time he should have stood bravely in that courtyard around that fire, and yet he denied Jesus. But then look later on. Listen to Jerome writing about the death of Peter. Here's what he says. He says, at Nero's hands, Peter received the crown of martyrdom, being nailed to the cross with his head toward the ground and his feet raised on high asserting that he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter had denied Jesus. Jesus never denied him. And yet years later, God honored that young zeal, that, that zeal to be strong. And in that moment, when the opportunity came, when he faced Nero, Jesus held him up and Jesus sustained him so that in that moment of decision later in his life that he actually would be sustained. Peter lived up to that extraordinary faith that he wished he could have had when he was younger. Young enthusiasm, that young enthusiasm for faith, it matters. Maybe it does fail you at a certain age, and yet there may come a day where it is needed. I remember the love I had for Jesus at a young age, and I find myself wanting to live up to that young man's dreams. Right? I, I still want to grow up to be that faithful man that I hoped I'd be one day. Does that resonate with you? You need those early dreams. You need that early desire. That fresh, extraordinary faith still matters later on. You know, um, 
a marriage needs those times of, of passionate romance to burn with white-hot flames. My kids are throwing up right now just hearing me say that. But a marriage, a marriage needs those times of passionate romance because eventually the flames of romance cool and they settle into a bed of warm, consistent, dependable coals that will endure far longer than the flames ever lasted. It is a mistake to discourage young, eager, big faith when we see it in God's people. God uses faith. He uses it in all its forms. And in this man's case, Jesus responds to this big faith by raising his daughter up in verse 25. He does it. The faith he had is is honored by Jesus. Word gets around. People are amazed. And we should be amazed because this man asked something extraordinary of Jesus and Jesus said yes. There will certainly be times where Christians will be called upon to exercise extraordinary faith where a decision has to be made, a decision that could send you to the other side of the world. Where you might have to give up everything and have your whole life uprooted. Where, where we have to trust something to God that almost feels ridiculous in its scope. We have a number of missionaries that we support who sold all of their property in America and permanently moved to the other side of the world. They have no plans to live in the United States again. Those are the kind of stories of extraordinary faith that we need to hear. That takes a deep trust. And we should even now pray that when the time comes, whatever that might be, that the Lord would give us the confidence in Christ so that we can do what we're called to do. Now, I can't give you illustrations uh, and tell you what those examples of extraordinary faith might look like for you. If I could just rattle them off and tell you, then they wouldn't be extraordinary. Um, They're extraordinary. So I can't tell you what that is, and I can't prepare you for exactly what that looks like. But, but I can challenge you right now, however old you are, resolve that you will be ready and willing to trust him, whatever God calls you to. Be willing to die and resolve it even now so that when the time comes, that, that white hot flame of devotion to God can actually be the coals upon which you live and upon which you thrive when you need it most. That's the first kind of faith on display here, extraordinary faith. But then second, we have an example of mundane faith. Now, sometimes we use the word mundane to describe something that's ordinary, something that's that's routine. Um, Something is mundane if it's an everyday thing that is just a normal part of life. We see this in verse, verse 20. It says, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. So the the woman in this narrative makes this appearance and her problem sadly has become a normal part of her life. There's there's a huge contrast going on here, right? The ruler's daughter has just died, shattering his world. Meanwhile, this woman has lived with this for 12 years. 
Mark 5.42 tells us this girl was 12 years old. Think about this. As long as that little girl had been alive, this woman had been suffering. This woman had bled for 12 years. The little girl lived for 12 years. This child is the age of her suffering. When I say that her faith is mundane, I do not mean the problem is small. Not at all. I I guarantee you this problem has almost certainly consumed this woman's world every day for the last 12 years. Every day when she wakes up, what is she thinking about? This. So for her, this problem feels as big as her whole world. And meanwhile, the rest of society just hums right along as if nothing is going on with her. And her suffering has been, has been great. You know, it, it, ha, it's been mon, it may be mundane by this point. It may be a normal part of her life, but it is still a big deal for her. This is a woman who has been bleeding. She's been hemorrhaging blood. Even in 2022, this would be an incredibly sensitive problem that most people would be afraid to share. You know, we get a lot of prayer requests and we include those in the house of prayer. I struggle to imagine anyone in this church sharing that prayer request. It's hard to imagine that making it into the house of prayer. We may live in a more open culture where we're willing to talk about some medical issues and yet there are some things that are very, very, very personal. Imagine living in a culture like the first century Israel where this isn't just unpleasant and more than a little gross. It's actually a problem that makes her ceremonially unclean as well as anyone who comes into contact with her. There are religious implications of what's going on in her life. You see, her ceremonial uncleanness, all, here's what it does. It amplifies the suffering. It amplifies the suffering even more. You know, for one thing, she would have been cut off from the ceremonial observances of Israel. She wouldn't be allowed to join in worship. Twelve years of no worship. Her ceremonial uncleanness means that she almost certainly has not been touched by another human being for the last twelve years. If anyone had touched her, they would have been ceremonially unclean too. Many of us can take touch for granted. The touch of an embrace, the touch of someone holding our hand, or even someone putting a hand on your shoulder, we can take it for granted. There are some people who have not known the compassion of human touch for a very long time. These are forgotten people in many cases. We need to remember as Christians that appropriate touch is a gift. And it is a way of showing love to another person when it is welcome. Its absence in this woman's life contributes to her suffering. This almost certainly explains why it is she decides to touch Jesus in secret, right? She she has resolved that no one will see her do this, that she is going to do this, as we might say, on the down low. Right? If someone sees her touch Jesus, what does that do? It would, in theory, make Jesus ceremonially unclean. She seems to be trying to avoid that. So imagine this. She hasn't been touched by anyone. She probably hasn't been near many people. 
Um, just a year in seclusion during COVID gave some people phobias of being around people. Um, imagine how much courage it took for her to press into this crowd. She was perhaps scared of being around people, right? If you made someone unclean, you could imagine how angry they might be um, and how that might weigh on your conscience. And look what Jesus does, though. Look how he receives her. He says this incredibly gentle word to her. He says, daughter. He looks at her and he sees one of his little ones. Daughter. By the way, she's the only person in the Bible Jesus calls by that name. It's the only time that we have recorded that he calls a woman daughter. Just imagine the kindness of this word. Such a lonely person. Imagine how long it's been since someone was kind to her at all. And he says the most gracious and compassionate thing she could possibly hear in this moment. He doesn't just say daughter. He says, daughter, take heart. He tells her to to take heart. He says, be encouraged. Your your time of despair, your time of loneliness is is over. The time of newness and, and joy is here. Take heart. I'm here now. I see you. No one else sees you. No one else has seen you. I see you. And then he says one more thing. He says, your faith has made you well. It is important that she understands the role of faith in what has just happened. She is not healed by magic, right? These other people pressed in on Jesus and they weren't necessarily healed by touching him, right? If they're sick, these other people are still sick. It's not that every person that bumped into Jesus was miraculously cured of whatever happened. Instead, he tells her what it is that distinguishes her from everybody else in this entire crowd. He says, it is her faith in him that does this. Think of what Jesus has done for this woman. On, On the one level, of course, there is her physical healing, right? Her life is is changed now. She can worship with God's people again. She's not unclean. She's not isolated. She can be around others. The the time of her, her loneliness has ended. But on the other level, you have, you have the simplicity of how Jesus receives her and isn't repulsed by her. He gives her the compassion that she needs and the compassion that she has needed for years. I am, I am afraid we are very often lacking in this sort of compassion. Um, we can be far more annoyed with people and their problems than we really have any right to be. Uh, very often, it has to be said, we lack the compassion of Jesus, right? Because we want to be around the clean people. We want to be around the perfect people. We want to be around the nice people. We want to be around the people with the smoothed out lives, and our, and our hearts can be far too small toward the hurting because the hurting needs something from us and we find that annoying. And here Jesus is with not, not of a hint of, of annoyance. In fact, you know what? I would be surprised. I would be surprised if the ruler of the synagogue that Jesus was supposed to be helping here wasn't a bit annoyed at this interruption. 
It's easy to imagine, isn't it? Right? Jesus, we're on, a, we're on a timetable here. I don't know how long her, her body can lay there before this doesn't make sense for us to go, right? We, we might be understanding if he became annoyed and had an urgency about him of getting to his daughter as quickly as humanly possible. If I were in this man's shoes, I would be annoyed because I am a sinner and I'm self-centered. And part of the reason that we are annoyed sometimes is we live in a world of problems and we think that we can't be bothered with the little things. We think only the big things matter. And we need reminders that not every problem that people experience is life and death. Sometimes life is just painful for people. They're not going to die from it, that they're suffering. and People feel miserable at times. They're not dying, but life is hard. And if you just said aloud the issue that you are dealing with, someone might be, might be tempted to think that it is very small. In fact, if I went to each of you and said, how are you doing? And some of you were, were to say, I'm not doing so well. I suspect the vast majority of you would have a little thing to share, the sort of thing that you wouldn't even bother sending in to the house of prayer each week. I remember when I was in college, I had a toothache and it was... It was an incredible toothache. It was a next level toothache. Um, and I, I let it get bad. I was super broke in college. You're supposed to be broke in college, and I was. And I didn't address it. I, I, I don't know why I was insane. I thought if I ignore this, then it will go away. And, you know, I was, I was 18 years old, and I just thought I can survive anything, you know. So I, I eventually, though, the pain was so bad, I couldn't pay attention in class. And I, I went back to my dorm room, and I remember at one point, driving, I started driving myself crazy. I remember I started hitting my head against the wall uh, because I wanted my head to hurt worse than my mouth. And, and at one point, I remember telling a student in my dorm that I was losing my mind over this toothache. And his response was so dismissive. I don't remember what it was, but he clearly thought, oh, it's just a toothache. And all I wanted, to, and he just went back to his video games, you know, and, and I was just like, just a toothache, I'm going crazy over here, but no one else cares, right? It's very easy to dismiss the pain and the small miseries that people go through. I think that is this woman here today. She has been overlooked for years. She's been unclean. She's been unable to go to worship, probably a pariah. No one, if she ever, she ever, you know, when you go to worship, you run into the same people time after time after time. You could imagine that there's nobody that even misses her. She hasn't been to worship in 12 years. Who is there even miss her? And, and in, in many ways, her problem, while sad, was not death, right? The ruler's child died. And people will move heaven and earth to mourn with this man, to pay attention to this man. Death is is ugly and horrible, but, but meanwhile, this, this lady is sure no one will care, but, and she needs this even if no one else sees it. Jesus says she has faith in verse 22, and the kind of faith this is is, is a humble faith. It, it is a simple faith that, 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 that meant to address something that matters to very few people in this woman's life, but, 
Not only that, but the humility of her faith is shown in her whole plan, right? Her plan is, I won't bother Jesus. I won't seek Jesus' attention. I won't distract him. He's doing more important things. She doesn't believe that she's important. She doesn't believe she even deserves his attention. But she's resolved that she would act on her faith, that her faith would be more than just an idea, more than just an intellectual belief that Jesus is able to heal. There goes that man who's able to heal. She doesn't just sit around with her friends if she had any and have a theological debate about whether Jesus has the ability to heal and if so, by what means. Uh, no, she, she, puts her, she puts her faith into action. She was someone whose faith moved her, who changed not just her attitude, but her, her actions. Mark's gospel includes an account of this incident, but he includes a little more than Matthew does. At one point, the woman touches him, and Jesus asks a question in Mark's gospel. He says, who touched my garments? Of course, everyone was touching his garments, right? So the question didn't make sense to the disciples. See, Jesus knows that someone meaningfully touched him, right? She touched him in faith. And there is something I would like you to see here. These People around Jesus are all pressing in. They're all touching Jesus. They're all near him. They're close to him. They're around him. They're, they're thronging to him. They want to be around him. And yet on one level, they aren't touching Jesus. Right? They're touching Jesus without touching Jesus. I wonder if you would allow me to make a point about faith from that for just a moment. We can be in proximity to Jesus and we can be near his message and we can be near his word, we can be near his sacraments, we, and yet we might never really touch him. So you're surrounded by gospel witnesses. You may hear the word week in and, and week out, but have you actually reached out to Jesus in faith? You've pressed in on him, you're around him, you're hearing it, you're, you know, you're around it. But faith doesn't work by osmosis. It doesn't just soak into us, right? If we see it, if we talk about it, if we live near it, we study it, we observe it for ourselves, but we do not actually exercise it and take hold of Jesus for ourselves, then it does us no more good than the people pressing in on Jesus without touching Jesus. Are you pressing in on Jesus? Or have you reached out to him in faith? There's an implicit promise here that, that when, we are, when we are weak, that is our greatest opportunity to bring ourselves and our troubles before Jesus. This is, a, this is a woman who came trembling and she left triumphant. She exercised mundane faith for a deep problem and she found Jesus ready and willing and capable of responding. Third, we need to remember the place where we live, which is daily faith. Most of our life will not be filled with the extreme examples, the big requests like the ruler of the synagogue has here today. That's not what life is actually usually made of. But we all live by the sort of mundane daily faith of this woman. The sort of faith that says, if he can raise a little girl from the dead, and if he can make sure that the birds have something to eat, then surely I can bring my problems to him too. The sort of faith that looks at her circumstances with her private medical condition. And what does that kind of faith sees? That when she brings it to Jesus, he won't despise her and he won't turn her away. 
Jesus cares about the sort of daily difficulties and pains and challenges that we face. We can take our everyday troubles to him. We can't. Um, some of you have incredible pain that, that you live with on a, on a daily basis. You can take it to him, and you don't have to feel guilty. Right? Yes, there are bigger things in this world. There are people who are starving to death. Yes, but you can take your daily pains to Jesus. You do not have to feel guilty for asking about something like that. Some of you have relationships that have suffered and that have been a major source of heartache. You can take those sort of things to him. Some of you are struggling in a thousand other ways that nobody else seems to notice and that you may feel is too small to even ask your friends or church family to pray for. You can take it to him and he won't turn you away. We aren't supposed to just wait until we only have big requests. He, he tells us to ask God for our daily bread. He says we should pray like that. Pray for your daily bread. Um, and by his example, he's showing us we can even bring private medical problems before him too. Don't be afraid. He, he is not remotely annoyed by your request. He is honored by your request. And your faith glorifies him. Whether mundane or, or extraordinary, there's, there's a common thread between these two instances of faith. I wonder if you see it. Do you see the thing that holds this narrative together? Um, this is, this, you know, we kind of call this sort of narrative a sandwich, right? It begins with this medical need for the daughter to be raised up. In the middle is this woman's arrival. And then at the end is the resolution where the little girl gets raised up. We call it a sandwich. Um, but do you see the, the common thread in this narrative? It isn't the quality of faith. It's the object of faith, right? Whatever the diverse things are that these people are struggling with, that they're hoping for, that they're bringing to him, they are finding their hope in the same place. They're finding their hope in Jesus. Uh, their faith may vary. What they ask of Jesus differs in its gravity, but they both know that the answer is in Christ and certainly not in themselves. You see, we need to be reminded of this because some days we may feel like our faith is strong and some days we may feel like we are just barely hanging on. But we need to remember it is not how strong the faith is. It is who the faith is in. Uh, listen to how J.C. Ryle says this. He says this, Weak faith is less comfortable than strong faith. Weak faith will carry us to heaven with far less joy than full assurance. But weak faith gives an interest in Christ as surely as strong faith does. He that only touches the hem of Christ's cloak shall never perish. Look at that light grip that she had on Jesus. But it was faith in Jesus, however small it might be. Right, the, the common factor here is Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes the difference. These people have faith in Jesus and that is enough. No matter the situation, what they find is that Jesus is more than capable. Um, so this morning, notice how Matthew sandwiches these two events together, right? One miracle happens in the course of the other. These events are historical. This is the way these things happen. That's why the story is reported this way. Yet these two stories, they, they do fit together. There is a reason why in God's providence, they happen together at the same time because they interpret and intensify each other, which is part of the reason why they're told the way that they are. What do I mean? 
Well, in this case, the healing of the hemorrhaging woman is a foretaste and a preview of the greater healing that comes with the raising of the dead, right? Her uncleanness becomes cleanness. Well, guess what a dead person is in Judaism? It's super unclean. (laughs) And so he takes this woman who's living and unclean, and he makes her clean, and he takes this little girl who was dead and unclean, and he makes her alive and clean. You see, Jesus goes bigger. He can always do bigger. He can always do greater. Do you you remember the beginning of John's gospel, how Jesus tells Nathanael something that he couldn't possibly have known? Uh, He says, I saw you. And Nathanael is just blown away that Jesus knew this thing about him. And then what did Jesus say? He said, you will see greater things than these. And he could have said to that woman, you're amazed that your uncleanness is clean. You should follow me to my next arrival. Right? And he could say that to the ruler, right? He could say to the ruler, you're amazed that I've raised up your daughter. I'm about to go give sight to two blind men. And he could have told the blind men, you think that's amazing? You think it's amazing that you can see? I'm about to rescue the world from their sin. I'm about to be raised up on the third day, right? Something even better than physical healing is coming. He could say that to all of us. So you have these daily concerns. Bring them to me. I love you. And you should know something even better than that is coming. All who have faith in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. What does he mean by greater things? He means eternal life for the lost. Right? Bigger than just life now. Bigger than sight to the blind. Bigger than the healing of a blood hemorrhage. See, the little deliverances of Jesus' ministry, we're not done seeing those. We're going to see more of those as we go through Matthew. But these little deliverances of Jesus' ministry point to a bigger and greater one that's yet to come. And so we should not despise the day of small things. Live in the daily, ordinary routine of life, remembering that even the seemingly small displays of kindness from God are like deposits, down payments on the big, grand gifts of faithfulness that are still to come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you use the encouragement of your word and the ministry of your spirit to help us to trust you, both in the small things and in the big things. Wherever we find ourselves, whatever our needs are, would you help us to remember that Jesus loves us and Jesus cares for us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Even while we're talking about what is new, we're not talking about something completely different, right? We shouldn't see what God promised to Abraham compared with what he granted in the new covenant as being fundamentally different. Yes, there were different ceremonies. There were different types before that pointed to Christ coming later. Yes, the spirit is at work in a greater measure under the new covenant. And yet we're still not talking about night and day when we talk about the covenants. We are talking about what Hebrews calls a newer, better covenant. But we're not talking about covenants that are in opposition to each other. Think of the new growing out of the old like a tree that grows out of a seed, right? The seed 
uh, the shell on the seed has to be broken, the bonds have to be burst, but it is the same plant in seed form that eventually breaks through the soil. The same work that God began with Abraham and Moses and David, he continues today through Jesus. Believer, be encouraged. The same God is at work who has been at work throughout the history of his people from the very beginning. From the very beginning of his people, he has been doing one work. Now we've been looking this morning at how the old and the new intertwine together in the work of God. And I, I, I hope you're convinced that this has always been one work of God from the beginning to the end. But, but hopefully you can also see that there are differences between what came before Jesus and what came after. And why it is so much better so much better to live after. Living with Jesus is better than living with shadows. Amen? <laughs> uh, we have the real thing in Christ, not just the picture. Uh, you know, imagine a, a child who has, who, whose father went off to war before he, before he was ever born. And as he gets older, he sees this photo of his father on the mantle. And he asks his mother, who is that? Who is that? And she says, that's your father. He's coming home. And then every year he looks at that photo of his father. And then one day his father walks through the door and takes him up in his arms. Is there anyone who would say, oh, he would be better off with the photograph on the mantle? No one would say that. Jesus has come. The promise is fulfilled. The picture is completed. He is here. Jesus is so much better than the picture. One thing I didn't mention, probably the biggest difference between the, the old and the new covenant is this. The old covenant didn't last. It was eventually done away with. Jeremiah 31, 32 says that Israel broke that covenant. The author of Hebrews tells us that if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So the first covenant differs from the second in that it did not last. But the fulfillment of the new covenant will never go away. It will never be repealed. It will never be abrogated. The new covenant was promised as far back as Abraham, begun in the life of Jesus, achieved in the death of Christ, guaranteed for us at the resurrection of Jesus, and will come to final, consummate completion in eternity. The new covenant will never go away. It will never change. It is perfect. It remains a promise for us. It remains a promise for our children. There is no plan B. This is the work and the plan of God that he always had to give us the newer, better way of salvation begun in Jesus and accomplished for us forever. Let's praise our God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you use these reminders this morning to stir our hearts to trust in you? Would you use all of this to build our confidence, to ground our assurance, to help us to remember the firm and solid ground that we stand upon in Christ? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.